Well, good morning again. I forgot to mention uh, this morning that if you see Ginger after second service, wish her a happy birthday. It's her birthday. And then uh, Jeremy, it's his birthday, I heard. So Jeremy's back there. Happy birthday, Jeremy. And Julie Dowden was her birthday. I forgot to roast her on first service. But uh, but uh, birthdays. Anybody else have any other birthdays you want to say happy birthday to? So. All right. You've lost it. That's it. All right. We are starting a new book this morning. I'm excited about it. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will get one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 17 verses this morning. I'm excited because there's so much in the Gospel of Matthew. We got the Sermon on the Mount. We got the Lord's Prayer. We got Matthew 24. I mean, the Lord's Return. And it's just, it's going to be great. Um, but as we begin, we're going to go and read some genealogy. Now, it can be tough, but I'm going to do my best to not butcher too many of these names. Let's go to read starting in verse 1 to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jumping Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. And Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Okay, verse 14. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Iliad, Iliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar Eliezer begot Mathen, Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. The title of my message this morning is, How's Your Family Tree? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather together, Lord, to look back at your family tree and the man and the woman that you used, Lord, to point uh, the way to you and our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how powerful your Holy Spirit uses your word to change our lives. And so we pray that this morning we would just be like clay, Lord, just moldable and, 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 uh, molded into the men and women you've called us to be as we study your word. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us and is yet to surrender their heart and life to you as, and to, to have you as their Lord and their, their Savior, Lord, that they would see their need for you this morning 
and they would come to know you as so many of us do today. So we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon it. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, family trees and, and ancestors are really popular nowadays. You've got Ancestry.com and all these things going on. And, and uh, you know, you start searching back on some of your family trees online. Did you find some things that, that maybe you wish you had not known? A lot of times we're, we're hoping to find, oh, I had this, this, this uncle who did something great and, and just this great guy and did all this. Oh, this is, this is my family tree. Years ago, um, uh, I have a, a, a great-great-grandfather. His name is John Rowan and don't have. He's dead. My great-great-great-grandfather is dead. Um, uh, but <laughs> that's an old joke from years ago. Anyway. <laughs> His name was John Rowan. Had six daughters. They were called the, they were called the Bells of Bartstown and they built my old Kentucky home in Bartstown, Kentucky. One of those daughters named Jeannie's believed to, who John Rowan's cousin Stephen Foster wrote the classic song, I Dream of Jeannie with a Light Brown Hair. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he's related, uh, you know, he wrote uh, My Old Kentucky Home. Well, when my grandmother passed away, she had a picture of this man, John Rowan, that we were instructed after her death that we were to bring it back to my old Kentucky home, which is now a state park in Kentucky, and, and donate it to the museum. And so we're going, oh, this is really cool. We got this picture, and we're going to go to this museum. And, and we talked about the guy on the way to the museum and all that. And, and so we get there, and you know, they, they, we tell him who we are and and. We didn't have to pay the five dollars to get in. So I was, yeah, we're a relative. We got in for free. But, but, um, so you go on this tour and we had this picture. And so we go on the tour and we're walking around and, and, uh, um, you know, we see one of the pictures of him on the walls. And I go upstairs and there's a picture there of him in the wall upstairs. And, and there's a rocking chair by this window. And the tour guy is going, yes, this is where John Rowan, he was sick and he was spent, you know, many of his days just recovering here in, in this chair. And I thought, oh, you know, yeah, that's the guy that I got the picture to. And then she goes, well, then it was also one day his, his wife came in and, and uh, uh, confronted him on having an affair with one of the slaves and pushed him out the window and, and he died. <laughs> I don't know the guy, you know, um, we're not related, uh, you know. I mean, it just goes to show you that you can have some pretty notorious characters in your family tree. One person said, I don't have to look at my family tree because I know that I'm the sap. I I don't know where they fit in that. But yet here in Matthew chapter 1, we have one of the most messed up family trees of all time. And, And I'm talking about prostitutes and cheaters and adulterers and liars and even a murderer. And, of course, I'm speaking of the family tree of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we're looking at this morning. I mean, if you think you have a messed up family tree, wait until we dig into some of these names we just read, including in the family, included in the tree of the Lord. Let me ask you this question. You don't need to answer it out loud, but how many of you, when you get to, to the genealogies in your Bible, just kind of skip over it? I think we've all done it. You know, we, we go, okay, and, and, and you know, Abraham and David is this, and all right, okay, verse 18. We kind of skip over that. And well, you know, this person, we got that person, we can't pronounce these names, and, and this endless names, and, but you know, they may not be the most exciting part of God's Word, but they're there for a reason. These genealogies, these, these names that we skip over so often are really testimonies of the sovereign power of our God. Each generation tells a story of God working, His caring, His thrusting into the lives of His people. So now, don't you feel bad about skipping over the genealogies? Yeah, okay, so do I. 
So it's time we redeem ourselves by taking a look at just a few of these people. And as we look at a few of these characters from our family tree of the Lord, it's going to show one simple thing. That God gives second chances and third chances. That God can redeem the mess that we make of our lives. Because when we look back at the men and women that God uses, we see that they were not perfect. Think of the seriously flawed people that God used throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, let me just, just read to you a few of the, on the list. Noah... He got drunk. Jacob was a liar. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David had an affair. Moses was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal at one point. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Timothy had an ulcer. John the Baptist ate bugs and Lazarus was dead. So don't think that God can't use someone like you if he can use someone like these men and women here. Now, as we start the Gospel of Matthew, understand we have four Gospels, you know, because the Lord wanted to give us four different angles of the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's as if the Holy Spirit film crew set up four different cameras at different angles, a camera at each corner of the action. It's the, 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 The Gospels cover the same events, the same person, the same story, but from different perspectives. Mark's Gospel, for example, wrote with an emphasis on the actions of Jesus. Compared to the other Gospels, Mark had very little dialogue, but it appealed to the action-oriented Romans. You know, bam, bam, bam. It's, it's, it's the shortest of the Gospels. Luke wrote to the Greeks, the philosophers uh, in Athens had this lofty view of man, and so Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He depicts Jesus as the perfect man. And then John wrote, with the whole world in mind, you know, he turns the spotlight on the deity of the Lord. Jesus was God, is God, the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world. And finally, Matthew, where we come to this morning, wrote to the Hebrews. Matthew was a Jew writing to the Jews, addressing Jewish concerns. His gospel really is a bridge that connects the Old Testament promises with the New Testament premises. There are 129 quotations or references from the Old Testament in the pages of Matthew's Gospel. In fact, nine times Matthew uses the phrase, it is written. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. Fourteen times Matthew writes, of that which was spoken. Again, speaking of the Old Testament. I mean, he makes it clear uh, that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same. And he does so by beginning with his genealogy. Look at verse 1 now of Matthew chapter 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now understand, to the Jewish people, genealogies were very important. Before they were interested in anything else, they wanted to know who your father was, who your father's father was, and, and who your father's father's father was. And so they were interested in that. That's what they were concerned with. Now, to us, the genealogy of Jesus is important because it's a story of the greatest uh, story ever told. It sets the stage, rather, for the greatest story ever told. Now, some people say, well, then, how come you have in Luke's Gospel the, the genealogy and it's different from the one in Matthew's Gospel? They are indeed different, but it's quite simple. Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus through the line of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, and Luke traces it through the line of Mary. But both trace back to the King David. Why is that important? Because it was prophesied that Jesus would reign as king on the throne of David forever. Now, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. 
He was uniquely identified as a man after God's own heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. God chose him out of obscurity, anointed him through the prophet Samuel to ascend to the throne of King Saul. And David was a, was a great king, the best that ever Israel ever had. And, and he ruled over the people and they loved him. Not only was he a great musician, he was a great warrior. David had the whole package and he ruled well for a time. But then he fell into sin. In fact, his greatest victory and his greatest defeat can be summed up in two names. David and Goliath, right? And David and Bathsheba, right? There it is. David, a young shepherd boy, brought down this nine foot six wall of muscle known as Goliath, chopped his head off. But then he took the wife of another man, Uriah, committed adultery with Bathsheba, ultimately tried to cover it up and had Uriah effectively murdered. Yet what is great is that despite his sin, God included him in this messianic line. Now, that is because David repented and he was not only a part of the messianic line, but again, he was really the most important part of it. In fact, Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1 verse 32, speaking of Christ, he will be called great, the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he was referred to as the son of David. And that's why Matthew, because it's a Jewish book written to the Jews, begins his gospel in in the way in which he does, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, what I want to do this morning is just pull out four names here that are recorded for us out of all of them. Uh, Four in particular. Matthew gives us the name of four women. And these ladies are going to make up our four points this morning. We're going to look at number one, Tamar. Number two, Rahab. Number three, Ruth. And number four, Bathsheba. Now, perhaps the most important fact of the genealogy is that God keeps his word. This genealogy points out that God has been working in the past to preserve his word and make good on his promises. But he's also teaching us that through his genealogy, that he came not only for sinners, but through sinners. See, Jesus was not the kind of guy who was ashamed of sinners. He even puts them in his family tree. See, all four of these women were involved in some sort of public scandal. Tamar and Rahab, they were prostitutes. Ruth was a Gentile. Bathsheba was an exhibitionist. She bathed on the rooftop in full view of the king's balcony. Matthew later refers, uh, infers that she's an adulterer. Yet again, the amazing thing is that Matthew sees to it that Jesus' genealogy includes everyone who's related. You know, if you were to record your genealogy, you know, you might want to leave out, you know, the, the, the lady that pushed the guy out the window, you know, the shady characters. But the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to include everybody. Prostitutes, outcasts, adulterers. Again, because Jesus came for and through a people soiled by sin. And all four of these women, as we will see, God has poured His grace upon their lives and included them in this genealogy. And the fact that women are mentioned is really is unusual. Because we know, especially back then, women have often been victimized and marginalized and excluded. In fact, the religious Jews often began their prayers with, Thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, in that order. See, Jesus Christ has done more to elevate women than any other person in history. So the first person we need to bring up, I want to draw your attention to, is Tamar. Look at verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now keep in mind that the Jews, they were really into family responsibility. So when Tamar's name shows up in verse 3, it would have been a real shocker to the mind of the Jewish reader. Does anyone remember 
Tamar, her story, Genesis 38. Let me tell you, she's a, a children's Sunday school teacher's nightmare, okay? Talk about your proverbial skeleton in the family closets. She was a glowing example of practicality. Her model was, I will do whatever I have to do in order to get the job done. Even if that involved pretending to be a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law. You know, man, how do you teach that to a bunch of Sunday school kids? But you see, Judah was one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and, and Shelah. Now, Ur married Tamar, but Scripture tells us that he was a wicked man, so much so that it cost him his life. Now, the practice at that time was, uh, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy 22, that if a man died uh, and the woman did not have any, any children, then the next brother in line, the brother of that man, would then marry that, that, that woman and raise up kids in the name of that deceased brother in order that the heritage in the name would, would continue on. And think about that, ladies, if you did that today. You know, if your husband died, you have no kids, you have to marry your brother-in-law. And that could be a, probably a frightful thought. I don't know, but... In any case, in this situation with Tamar, Er's brother Onan refused to play by the rules. And so the Lord, because of, of the hardness of Onan's heart, wiped out Onan. So now two down, one brother left to go. And so uh, Judah says, okay, I've got one son left. I don't know if I want to give him to this gal. I mean, I saw the fate of my other two boys. I mean, the, the, the record's not so good. And so the father says, you know, Judah says, listen, Tamar, Wait until my third son gets to be a little bit older, then I will give him to you. But then the years went on and on and on, and, and Shelah grew up, and, and Judah didn't keep his promise. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She takes off her widow's garments, veiled herself as a harlot, a prostitute, sat by the roadside waiting for Judah to come along because it's the road that he traveled the most. So Judah, seeing this harlot he's never seen before, doesn't recognize, approaches her, and he makes a deal. But Judah didn't have a wallet with him, or I should say his sheep with him. And so, uh, you know, she says uh, to Judah, well, give me your ring, Tamar says, and, and your staff and your bracelet, and that'll do for now. You can give me the sheep uh, later on that you owe me. Well, they had relations, and he left her with the ring and the staff and the bracelet, you know, having no clue who he was dealing with. Well, Judah came back with the sheep, but Tamar was nowhere to be found. A few months go by, Tamar, the widow of Ur and Onan, the daughter-in-law of Judah, played the prostitute and became pregnant. Judah's response, not knowing, of course, that, that he was responsible, says, let her be burned, wipe her out, you'll kill her. Now, her response was, well, do you know whose bracelet I have here? You know, whose staff I'm holding in my hand? Whose ring I have here? Busted. You know, the Bible says, rest assured, your sin will find you out. I mean, wouldn't you love to see the look on Judah's face? Uh... That ring looks a little familiar. Is that, is that my staff? That's my bracelet? Oh, you know, burning her is not probably a good idea right now. Um, but he does do the right thing. I mean, listen to Genesis thirty-eight twenty-six. He says, she is more in the right than I am because I didn't keep my promise to let her marry my son, Shelah. See, in holding back his son, Judah was robbing Tamar of her rightful seed. I mean, it's a kind of distasteful story to say the least. But you can see the Lord saying here, hey, let's put Tamar in the genealogy. Because the Jews are so proud of their male superiority and their sense of family responsibility. Folks, it's a sad thing when the man of the house has not taken the responsibilities in his home seriously and in turn wives and moms are forced to take the dad's responsibilities as well as the moms into their own hands. 
And sadly, in many homes, Christian homes, the moms are, are the ones doing the devotions at night with the kids. The moms are the ones that are doing the discipline. The mom is really is, has, has to take the leadership in the home because, because dad has not you know, come up to the plate and, and it's not the place God designed for it all, but the man has not stepped up to the plate and fulfilled his God-given uh, duties to his family and to the Lord. And oftentimes, you know, men or wives, they can get overwhelmed. It can be too much. Reminds me of the story about a really busy housewife who sprang to the telephone when it rang and, and listened with, with relief to the kind voice on the other end. He said, how are you doing, darling? What kind of day are you having? Oh, mother, said the housewife, breaking into bitter tears. I, I've had such a bad day. The baby won't eat and the, the washing machine broke down. I haven't had a chance to go shopping. And besides, I've just sprained my ankle. I have to hobble around. On top of that, the house is a mess. And I'm supposed to have two couples over for dinner tonight. Well, the mother was shocked and all at once sympathetic. Oh, darling, she said, sit down, relax, close your eyes. I will be over in, a, in an hour and a half. I'll do your shopping. I'll clean up your house. I'll cook dinner for you. You know, I'll feed the baby. I know of a, a, a repairman that can come out and, and fix your washing machine. Just stop crying. I'll do everything. In fact, I'll even call George at the office and tell him he ought to come home and help you out for once. George, said the housewife, who's George? Why, George, your husband, is this 555-1373? No, it's 555-1375. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I guess I have the wrong number. There's a short pause, and the housewife said, does this mean you're, st- you're not coming over? <laughs> Just a word to your dads out there. Dad, sometimes mom can be overwhelmed, and we need to be sensitive to her needs and do what you can to make sure that she's not overwhelmed. We need to fulfill the role that God has given to us to lead our families as God has called us to do. Here we see Judah recognize he failed in his responsibilities, but then he did something about it. He did the right thing. He said of Tamar in Genesis 38, 26, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to, to Sheila, my son. And God includes Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus, showing that the grace of God in her life. Now this brings us to our second person we want to look at. Number two is Rahab. Look at verse 5. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now Rahab as well can be difficult to teach in the children's ministry because Rahab was actually a prostitute, a harlot. But again, I, I love that, that Matthew brings this up because the Jews also, they were not only into family responsibility, but they were also into sexual purity. This was a biggie to them. And who should make number two in the list of women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? A prostitute. Again, showing the grace of God in the lives of these women. Now you may remember Rahab's story in the days of Joshua when the spies were sent into, into Jericho to scope it out. It was Rahab that uh, hid them and covered up for them. She's now being honored by appearing in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and not only here, but I mean, her name is in, in uh, the, the, the Hall of Faith, you know, Hebrews chapter 11. Says there in verse 31, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute did not die with all the others in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She was a tremendous woman, not because she was a harlot, but because in spite of her limited knowledge, in spite of, uh, of her, her limited understanding, she risked everything, believing that the God of Israel was the one and true living God. Listen, let me say this if you're the only Christian in your home, like Rahab, that can be risky. It can be frustrating if, if you have a non-believing spouse. 
I mean, you're placed with a heavier burden because you want your children to be raised in the Lord and, and your spouse, you know, oftentimes they don't want to do the church thing. Oh, come on. Why do you want to go to church today? What's the big deal? And see, that's when faith comes in. That's where, where being like Rahab comes in, in, in the good sense. You're committed to hiding God's word in your heart and, and you're committed to, to, to coming to church because like Rahab, you believe that the God of Israel is a true and living God. Now, you may face difficulties and have to risk ridicule from your husband or from your wife, but it means having the proper priorities. God first, then husband, and then children. You know, God first, our wives, then our children. So, this brings us to our third woman in the genealogy, Ruth. Now, of all the women on the list, she might be considered good, but even she was a little aggressive in trying to land Boaz. But, but you know her story. Ruth married one of the two sons born to a woman named Naomi. And those two boys, their names were uh, Malon and Chilion. And their names meant sickly and piney. And both of them died. You know, maybe their names was the clue in all that. I mean, why would you marry a guy named Sickly? You know, I don't want to marry a guy named Sickly. I, I mean, usually they named children after, you know, the way things appeared. You know, for instance, we all know that Esau... You know, means Harry, and the reason he got the name Harry is because when he was born, he had hair all over him. Oh, look at this kid, he's Harry, let's call him Harry. And so clearly these were unhealthy looking boys, and they both died. So now all of a sudden, here is Ruth, who's lost her husband, and, and Naomi says, Well, look, I don't have any more boys for you, Ruth. Amen. You might as well just go on home. You know, we're done. But Ruth loved Naomi. And she said, I, I want to go where you go. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And she followed Naomi and ultimately led her to a man named Boaz who fell in love with her and married her and she entered into the Messianic line. Now here's what's interesting about Ruth. She was a Moabite. You say, well, so what? Yeah, well, do you know where Moabites came from? When Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah, he had sexual relations with his daughter, incest. The product of that union was a child named Moab who produced a tribe called the Moabites and became the avowed enemies of Israel. And yet despite this wicked thing out of the Moabites comes Ruth who entered into this messianic line of the Savior of the world. Again, just showing us God's grace in the lives of these women by God, including a Moabite woman and his son's genealogy. I love it. Now this, incidentally, is the third thing that the Jews were against because they, they, were, they were into racial purity. They were into family responsibility. They were into moral purity. And they were into racial purity. And the genealogy goes, yeah, okay, you're into that? Look at looky here. See, they were very concerned that the racial line remained free from pollution as they saw it. In fact, this developed so much that during Christ's time, if you were a Jew, you were, you were to have nothing to do with non-Jews, Gentiles. But if you accidentally touched a Gentile as you're walking down the street, you would have to go home, immediately take off all your garments and burn them, take a bath, and then you could get dressed again and go your way. I mean, as a Jew, you wouldn't even want to get close to a Gentile. Yet again, look who's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A Gentile, Moabitess, King David's grandma, who happens to be a Gentile. So we have Tamar, because the Jews are in the family responsibility. Rahab, because the Jews were in the moral purity. And then we have Ruth, because the Jews were in the racial purity. Finally, the fourth thing the Jews were into was their family history. We have Bathsheba. Again, God chose Bathsheba because the Jews were in the family history. Look at verse 6. She's re referred to as her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, isn't that an interesting way to record, to, to identify the, the, the wife of Uriah? 
Why not just put her name there instead of saying she was the wife of Uriah? Listen, God is calling our attention to Uriah because he was a good man. In fact, he was, he was one of David's best and loyal men. When David was fleeing Saul because Saul did not want David to rule as king, a group of men left everything to follow David. They gave up their safety. They gave up their homes. They were known as David's mighty men. And among these men was this guy named Uriah. Fast forward a little bit. David's the king. He sees Uriah's gorgeous wife Bathsheba bathing herself. Appropriately, Bathsheba. And uh, he calls her up to his chambers, has sexual relations with her. She becomes pregnant. And instead of confessing his sin, he brings Uriah back from the battlefield, hoping that he will uh, be with his wife and they will think that that child is, is theirs because they didn't have paternity tests back then in those days. But Uriah would have nothing to do with it. He was a devoted man to David and he would not have sexual relations with his wife. And so David thought, I'll forget it. I'm just going to get rid of him. And he had Uriah killed. I put him in the front lines. And, he, and so then David marries Bathsheba. You know the rest of the story. So much sin. And yet God intervenes. You see, the Jews were so proud of their history, especially this great King David. And this was just a reminder of his affair with Bathsheba. And it must have been hard for them to look at. But here's the point. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included Bathsheba as well as these three other women to shake up the Jewish people of that day, to wake them up from their spiritual complacency, to wake them up to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior who came into this world to save sinners. What does that say to us this morning? The same thing. To wake us up, to show us that the stage is set for the Lord to do a new thing in our lives. Especially for those of you that that might have said, well, the Lord can't use me because I've blown it. I've really messed up over here. I've sinned so bad. I've let down my family responsibilities. You know, I've messed up my family like Tamar could have been accused of doing with her, her trickery and deception. Maybe there's something in your past that you feel God could never use you because of it. Be it in an affair, an abortion, or some sin that that makes you think that God can never use you. You need to read this genealogy again. Our Lord delights in using people like Tamar. Maybe you think you had, yeah, but I had a bad reputation. Remember Rahab, your reputation isn't worse than hers. I don't care who you are, where you've been, if you're willing to say, I'm committed to the Lord 100% like Rahab, risking everything, believing that God is the God of Israel, the true and living God, then He's going to use you and you're going to be included in, and you're going to be, you'll, you, you know, He'll use you and Jesus will be seen in your family tree. You know, the Pharisees might have said to Matthew, how can this be Rahab, you know, and stuck their noses up at him? You know, you know, you know and, and, and you know, made fun of him. You know, and maybe you experience the same thing, you know, you know, in your family. You know, you're a Christian. How can that be? You know, a big deal. Let them know anyway. Let them know that, that, that our Savior makes all things new. He's included Rahab in making all things new. That means he chooses you and me as well because he's a friend of sinners. Maybe you've had failures in your, in your past. Maybe it's the last 30 years or 30 minutes, minutes. Maybe, you know, you have questionable morals in the past. You may be like Ruth the Moabite. It's not really educated theologically. You, you, you know, you, you haven't been Christianized. So what? Join Ruth who simply looked at Naomi and said, I will go wherever you go and live wherever you live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So I'm glad that the genealogy is here in Matthew. He chose people like those listed here to give us hope that no matter who we are, no matter where we're at, God's grace is sufficient for all of us. 
Again, we have Tamar because the Jews were in the family, purity, or family responsibility. Rahab because the Jews were in the moral purity. Ruth because the Jews were in the racial purity. And Bathsheba because the Jews were in the family history. And then we have Jesus because he's in the grace. He's in the grace. Even the genealogy of Jesus is, is an illustration of redemption. No, we can't pick our relatives, but, but Jesus did. Jesus chose people, flawed people, people who experienced the depths of sin so that we can see that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the pool of grace and mercy you can dive into. So, as we get ready to close, what do we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? Number one, it's given to us so God's grace would be richly displayed. I mean, again, look at the cast of characters in this story. Look at their shortcomings. Now, no way do we condone their sin. No way do we celebrate their sin. But it is to say that when you sin, there is forgiveness. We should never use God's grace as an excuse to do wrong. Some people say, well, well, nothing happened when I sinned, and so maybe God is just turning a blind eye to it. Maybe, maybe even God you know, approves of what I'm doing. No way. Wake up. It's called grace. Don't abuse it. Paul says in he says, should we go on sinning that God's grace may abound in Romans 6? God forbid, how should we uh, who have died to sin live any, live any longer therein? So this is a reminder. There's consequences to sin. I mean, coming back to David, though he was forgiven and put into the messianic line, this guy paid the price for his sin. He saw his own wicked behavior repeated in his own children. So there's still consequences. There's still cause and effect when we sin. Don't think that, that we can be completely off the hook just because you, got asked, you, know, you asked God to forgive you. Yeah, God does forgive you, but you still may face repercussions. But God can intervene. The number two, we have this genealogy given so the focus would be on Jesus and not on his family. Sometimes people have a hard time relating to Jesus. He's just so perfect. Of course he is. He's God. There's no question about it. But they see him oftentimes in his religiosity, this, this, this icon displayed on stained glass that's, that's totally unaware of them, or, or he's this larger-than-life statue with this judgmental look staring down at them. But here's the thing. When we read of the genealogy or the family tree of Christ, we realize this, this man came in touch with the real world. He came in touch with real people. He was sinless, but he loved sinners. He himself was called the friend of sinners. And Scripture reminds us that he was tempted on all points as we are yet without sin, the Bible says. Yet he knows what it is like to face these things. And by the way, if your family has ever thought that you were crazy for following Jesus, understand Jesus' family thought he was crazy as well. See, prior to his resurrection, uh, his brothers weren't buying into the fact that he was the Messiah, his, his stepbrothers. He, he was Mary, the mother, who had Jesus supernaturally conceived in a room. No doubt she told her other her children about it. Yes, Mary had other children. But there was a time that they came to Jesus to try and get him to bring him back and take him home from where he was speaking. And the scripture says that they thought he had lost his mind. So they thought he was nuts, too. And so his own family rejected him prior to his death and resurrection from the dead. So if your family thinks you're nuts for following Jesus, you're in good company. Finally, number three, this genealogy is given so that we might have hope for our future and the future of our family. Most of us don't have murderers or prostitutes in our family tree. Surely we have some adulterers and liars and cheaters, but no family would be complete without them. But listen, Jesus can intervene in your life and in your family's life right now. 
So let me ask you, how's your family tree? What is the state of your family? Man, let me come back to you for a moment. Are you being the spiritual leader in your home? Again, in far too many Christian homes, the men are spiritually passive at best, and they're resistant at worst. And by that I mean it's the wife that's so often the spiritual leader. She's the one that says, honey, let's go to church. Honey, let, let's open up the Bible. Honey, let's pray tonight. Honey, you know, you know and, and we are, I don't know, the football game's on. I don't know, let, let's... Listen, man, I shudder to think what would happen to the church if all the women left. I think we'd all be in smoke group of guys going, now what do we do? Thank God for the woman and their heart for the Lord. But men, it's time for you to, to, to rise up and be the leader in your home. And guess what? Your wife wants you to be that leader. So be the ones who set the pace. Be the ones that love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, listen, you're not off the hook. You're told to submit to your husband, submit to your husband as to unto the Lord. And the Bible specifically says, wives, love your husbands. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time you told your husband that you loved him? Oh, you know, he, he knows that I love him, you know. But you always let him know about everything else, right? You know. When are you going to take out the trash? When are you going to fix that? Why did you do this more? Why didn't you do this less? That really bothers me. You know, it bothers me. How about telling him you appreciate him? That you appreciate how hard he works, how faithfully he's provided for your family, how he's there for, for you and for your children. Well, he's not all of that great of a leader. Well, lie. No, no, don't lie. Don't lie. <laughs> I can't believe the pastor said a lie in church. <laughs> Find out what is good and let him know instead of always focusing in on what is bad. Far too many homes, all the guy hears is everything that is wrong. He never hears a compliment, never hears an affirmation. Believe it or not, guys like to hear a compliment every now and then. They do. Let them know that you love them. And finally, be the parent that God has called you to be. Set that example in your home for your children. A godly example. They're watching you. Raise them up, nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. You might say, well, Tom, my children are rebelling right now. Okay, that happens a lot. Just keep praying for them and keep loving them and don't give up on them. Finally, I want to close with this. Maybe some of you are saying, well, I wish I would have heard this message like 20 years ago because I have not done things right. And in fact, I've done the opposite of these things. I've not loved my wife or husband or I've gotten divorced. I'm remarried. It's a mess. My children are not talking with me. Even the dog won't look at me anymore. Just all messed up. You know what? That's why I call this message, How's Your Family Tree? To get you to know that you've been adopted into Jesus' family. And as he is the leader of his family, he specializes in cleaning up messes. God specializes in intervening in complete confusion and chaos. Jesus came to bring hope to hopeless situations, to shower grace upon your life. You know, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, my prayer is that we would continue to saturate ourselves with the good news, the Gospel. That even though we we fall, even though we've done some pretty bad things, God never gives up on us. God can take any situation in your life and turn around and use it for good. Jesus put it this way in Revelation 21, 5 and 6. Behold, I make all things new. He says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. That word for all and all things, it's a word all, and it means all things. He makes all things new. No matter what you've done in your past, He can restore that relationship with Him because you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
Now you can look at your past and say, that's a past, that's a close chapter in my life. Now I'm walking with the Lord from here on in. You know, when that happens, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. See, it's the cross of Christ that the completed work was done. Jesus died for our sins, rose again from the grave to, to make that way so we can have access to our Father, which is in heaven. The cross of the Christ is the completed work. And if you're reliving the failures of yesterday, or last Monday, or last month, then you're missing the gospel. The genealogy of Jesus says, I'm going to do something new, and I want to do it in your life, and I want to do it today. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, I encourage you, give your life to Him this morning. And if you do, and you're haunted by your past, your past is your past. Forget those things which are behind you. Press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He makes all things new. We start from here on end. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm excited about it. Next week we're going to see Christmas in July. And so that will be the study for next week. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. We thank you for just the joy it is to see, Lord, how there were problem people, people that were sinners, people that blew it in your family tree. But you've called them and you've cleansed them and you've forgiven them and you've restored them, and you put them in a place of being a part of your family. Lord, that is your desire now for, for every one of us. Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to join the family of God, they're yet to have their sin forgiven. They're yet to come to you in, in, in repentance and, and ask for the forgiveness of their sin. Lord, that they would do so today is my prayer, as our prayer as believers, that they would not wait another moment before surrendering their heart and life to you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here, that they would do so this morning. Give their life to you. Lord, and for us that do know you, Lord, that maybe we're haunted with our past, Lord, help us to put that behind us and the trust in the grace that you've given to us, Lord, that as far as the east is from the west, you've put our sin from us. We thank you for that, Lord, that you've cleansed us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ as soon as service is over, elders are going to be up front. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. If you need prayer for any other reason, you're going through struggles, sickness, illness, anything, come on up. If you've got something good, something good to share, something exciting that God's doing in your life, come on up, share with us. We'd love to hear it. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song.